Hey everyone, before we get going, just want to point you to a nonprofit that Osiris Media Company is spreading the word about. It's called Sweet Relief. Sweet Relief is providing immediate assistance to anyone in the music industry who has been financially impacted by COVID-19. It has received thousands of applicants for assistance. Applicants include artists, crew, venue, workers, agents, managers, and photographers. Sweet Relief pays vital living expenses, including medical bills, health insurance, prescriptions, utility telephone bills, groceries, auto-related expenses, and even clothing. Applicants are being accepted now. Please apply for help or donate to help those in need at sweetrelief.org. That's sweetrelief.org. Incredibly important and helpful. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to Across the Margin of the Podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields, and I am not ashamed to commence this episode by candidly stating that I have dealt with anxiety in my life in various forms. And one thing I know for certain is I am not alone. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, nearly 40 million people in the United States, that's around 18%, experience an anxiety disorder in a given year. In addition, According to the World Health Organization, 1 in 13 people globally suffer from anxiety, making it the most common mental disorder worldwide. Thing is, these are pre-COVID-19 numbers, and so surely these numbers are swelling. I can even hear it in my friends' and family's voices when we speak. I see it in the eyes, the only visible part of our collective faces these days as I walk down socially distanced streets and surely when I need to venture into any grocery stores or pharmacies. I can sense it all around in a way I haven't before. And so, I figured it was high time to talk about it here on the podcast. What I have for you today is an interview with a clinical psychologist and OCD specialist with 25 years experience helping people with anxiety disorders and OCD, Dr. Eric Goodman. Dr. Goodman is a lecturer in the Psychology and Child Development Department at California Polytechnic State University, and he is the author of two books on anxiety. The first is called Social Courage, Coping and Thriving with the Reality of Social Anxiety. And the second, which I made the focus of this interview today, is the recently released Your Anxiety Beast and You, a compassionate guide to living in an increasingly anxious world. Dr. Goodman has what I find to be a very refreshing take on anxiety, one that I can't stop thinking about. At the crux of his latest book is the idea that anxiety isn't the villain many see it as, but actually a misunderstood hero. That might sound a bit crazy, but in Your Anxiety Beast and You, Dr. Goodman lays out how anxiety is actually always there to protect you. But the problem is, it is completely confused about what the threats are in this modern world. But from this launching pad of this new, more positive viewpoint, which normalizes the anxiety that lives in so many of us, Dr. Goodman focuses on the way to come up with 
teachable moments for your anxiety and to learn what you often fear is actually not a threat. I personally find the ideas in in his book extremely helpful, and I think many of you will too. We expound upon all the key points in his book with zest and, of course, talk about anxiety in the age of COVID-19. Following the interview, as some bonus content, if you will, I read an article I wrote a few years back for a publication called Organic Coffee Haphazardly. Um, That's run by Allie Burke, who runs Stigma Fighters. Uh, And this is about when anxiety first roared into my life. Soon after, my father ended up in a coma for a few days. Something tells me many of you can relate to the fear and anxiousness that arose from that time period. But now, here is my interview with Dr. Eric Goodman. But uh, I would love to dig into this book some and, and... Because you took an approach that I find extremely, really helpful and um, just a way of looking at um, anxiety um, as, as, as in, a, in a novel way that I haven't really thought about where you looked at, looked at it as um, not as an enemy, but as an inner hero, yep. um, as you put it, a loud, smelly, hyperactive um, <laughs> and uh, not too bright hero. But um, how is anxiety uh, a hero? Well... So, so you, you're right in the sense that, that so many people for so many years and, and, and a lot of experts have demonized anxiety. We've talked about anxiety as being a bully and, and it's very often, um, again, even among ex- experts, it's talked about as kind of our opponent, something that we need to defeat. The challenge is, is that there is no defeating anxiety. We, we are an anxious Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so anxiety kind of came around in, in prehistoric times. Um, and it's meant to protect us from things that are that are readily apparent and imminent. And, you know, the world changed quickly for humans. Right. Um, and if you think about just how far we've come in the last 10,000 years, if you think about how far we've come in the last 20 years. Yeah. Right, thirty years. Right, I mean, yeah. our yeah, our lives have been absolutely transformed. Anxiety still stuck back in in prehistoric times. There, it, it hasn't it hasn't changed, and so we're stuck with anxiety that is always trying to protect us. Mm-hmm. Right, whenever we're now, it, it with the with the caveat that there are some exceptions. If you and I drink ten cups of coffee, right caffeinated coffee, we're, we're going to have what I call kind of a medically induced anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but barring that, when we're feeling anxious, if it's not medically induced, it is our brain trying to help, right? It's trying to protect us. And when we think about anxiety as this, this demon, right, this, this, this monster, um, then we're we're becoming anxious about being anxious, right? Mm-hmm. And then we, we, we can fall for kind of, you know, snake oils out there saying, we're, we're going to cure you of anxiety. We're going to remove your anxiety. And the reality is, even if that were possible, and there's no research study that's ever been done that shows that we rid a person of a natural human emotion, particularly one that, that kind of defines humans. But, but even if we could, um, if we got rid of anxiety completely, we would be dead or disabled. Um, and they actually, uh, 
I talk in the book and, and, and you can, you can Google, um, uh, this person who, who we just know her initials SM mm-hmm. and, and SM is this, uh, this woman who's been highly, uh, researched. Um, she has this, uh, she was born with this disease that when she hit, uh, puberty, the amygdala in her brain, that's where anxiety lives, calcified. And she lost the ability to become afraid of things out in the world. Oh, wow. And, you know, so she talks about uh, kind of, you know, walking down a dark alley and being held at uh, gunpoint or knife point, um, which has happened to her multiple times. And for for you and I, if, if we're in a dark alley and, and we have this traumatic experience, our anxiety will not allow us to take that same route mm-hmm. at that same time, right? It's going to give us a panic attack if we even consider it. Um, but she'll go and do the same routes time and time again, no matter what happens. She just has lost her ability to feel fear. And, uh, you know, can you imagine what would happen if you didn't have the ability to experience anxiety and you're just driving on the highway and the car in front of you slams on its brake? you're not going to have that uh, quick reaction time to uh, that's needed to, to, to save your life. Yeah. Um, one, one of the questions I was definitely going to steer towards or, or just ask and kind of just put it simply in perspective is what, you know, would, um, what would, what would life look like without, uh, you know, the anxiety beast living with, with us? And it's obviously yeah. scary and, and deadly. And it was fun to look at it that way as, as something to work with. And, um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, and almost be thankful for, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's really intense. Cause, um, but yeah, so directly from your book, uh, it's, you, you phrase it as a question in your book and I think we're kind of speaking on it too, but what, um, what would you say are the cost of, you know, besides the safety we discussed of looking at, um, anxiety as the villain in our own life? So, so, you know, what happens, so if we think about anxiety's job, Mm-hmm. Right. Anxiety's job is to protect us from what it perceives to be a threat. Right. Yep. And so it's not kind of what we think in the logical part of our brain is a threat, but it's what our kind of our lower, more primitive part of our brain where, where anxiety lives. It's what it thinks is, is, is a threat. And so if, um, if, uh, uh, you know, if we think about public speaking, for example, that's, that's the number one phobic thing out mm-hmm. there. We know logically that it's safe, that no one's going to harm us, um, but our our anxiety thinks about it as a threat because being the center of attention during primitive times was a very risky thing, particularly with strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it floods us with adrenaline needed to fight or flee from, from that experience. Um, so it's, it, again, it's always trying to help. I, 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 I may have uh, not gotten back to your question. <laughs> no, you did. Definitely. I mean, it was interesting. You even went ahead and um, uh, there was a pointed out that um, we were able to, you know, one of the reasons humans are uh, sit atop um, the food chain even is that we are, because, uh, you know, we are delicate creatures. We don't have a hard yep. shell. We aren't that fast. But our ability to worry um, in complex and productive ways is the reason. That, that was kind of eye-opening to me. Yeah. I mean, so if we, if we think about it, that, that, you know, living things have 
some protective mechanism to to increase the likelihood that it's going to remain alive and pass on its uh, information to 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 further generations, right? And you know, lions have those sharp teeth, and and, mm-hmm. and elephants are just massive, and and uh, crabs have that hard shell, and there's eels that that uh, kind of have electricity, and even plants. There's plants that have spikes and things like mm-hmm. that. W- w- what do we have, right? We about uh, two million years ago or so, we developed this this bizarre ability to be able to mentally time travel. And, and what I mean, mean by that is if we get attacked by a saber-toothed uh, tiger, uh, well, let's, let's say a gazelle gets attacked by a, by a, by a lion. Mm-hmm. And once the gazelle gets, you know, assuming it survives and it gets back to, uh, to relative safety, it's forgotten. It goes on about its day. It feels happy. It's lapping up water and eating grass and, and, and all of that. Um, but didn't really learn anything about uh, that situation. Now, if it's a human and the human gets attacked by the lion, we have this remarkable ability to complexly mentally time travel. Oh, my God, I almost got ate, eaten by a lion, <laughs> right? Yep. And then project to the future, right? What should I do tomorrow if there's a lion? Should I, should I bring a rock or a stick? Um, and that right there, and again, another way to look at that is worry, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's what makes us top of the food chain because we can worry in incredibly complex ways that, that other animals can't. Uh, so, so I think we're just kind of defined by being a, a worried, anxious animal. Yeah. Um, and the idea is, Instead of uh, thinking we're gonna we're gonna do some technique or strategy or take a medication, and we're gonna be anxiety free, mm-hmm. well that that's not real. You know, maybe there. You know, hopefully there's times where anxiety is quiet, mm-hmm. um, but there are going to be highly anxious moments for for all of us in life. You know, if we look at like uh, COVID, right. Yeah. That's, you know, it's one of the things that I'm hoping is going to be a positive thing about COVID, if, if, if we can say that. And, and that's, I think, more and more people are just kind of normalizing that, yeah, we're, of course we're feeling anxious. This yeah. is a scary situation, right? Yeah. yeah, if we are to be honest um, with ourselves about what's, you know, what we're feeling and honest with each other. I mean, it's, that could help normalize it as well, which is, which is definitely, you know, like you said, it's hard to find positives in this, but that could clearly be one of them. Right, 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 and being able to see that it, it's normal, and and again, any any research study on anxiety shows that we can we can quiet it down thirty forty percent, which is on average, which is which is really nice, but we don't take it down to zero ever. We're we're always left with residual anxiety mm-hmm. um, and day to day. Little bits of anxiety, at least here and there, are, are going to show up. And if we treat it like it's a threat, well, then our anxiety is actually designed to hyper-focus, over-focus on anything that's a threat. And so we're going to become anxious about being anxious. Yeah, you're compounding the problem right there. You're, you're Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more we can understand that, 
it's okay that our bodies do this sometimes and we don't have to let it direct our lives. We can, we can, we can choose how we respond when anxiety wakes up yep. and we can respond in ways that, that certainly make it worse or, or, or improve it. Um, rather than getting into this, this struggle to get rid of it, which ultimately, uh, it's like those, you know, those finger traps you play with as, as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. The, the harder you pull, the tighter it they gets. go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, yep. that's how anxiety works. That's a good example for it. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to go too much further without talking about, um, technology cause it comes up multiple times in the book. And, um, one of the first times it did, um, you mentioned that technology of today often sends um, people the wrong message about anxiety. Um, and I was just wondering if you would speak on how so. Yeah. Um, so if we think about how many images we're exposed to throughout the day, right? And, mm-hmm. and remember, you know, prehistoric humans, we saw we were we were part of very small tribes, um, you know, fifty to two hundred people. Not not a lot of people. So we kind of saw the same sorts of images and faces every day. Now we wake up in the morning, we get on our smartphones, mm-hmm. and we're constantly bombarded by images and that are typically carefully curated to be uh, to be calm and peaceful and zen like, uh, you know, joyful. Um, images, and then our, our our brains think, "Wow, what is wrong with me?" Mm-hmm. Because I feel I don't I don't always feel calm and happy and 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 and, and, and joyful. Um, that uh, there must be something wrong, and then we begin to feel worse. Yeah, yeah. And so it can give it can give this false impression. Um, social media, in particular, can be very one sided. Yeah, the um, um, you know, it it's I guess you I guess it was put as it uh, it kind of puts cheerfulness as the ideal um, yeah. out there, which was interesting. And then another one, which just hit home so much. If you think about um, you know how all the world's stresses are really at our fingertips, whether it's these big monumental things like COVID or climate change or just anything anyone in your social media realm. Uh, is dealing with it's right there at your fingertips, uh, adding to this yeah. concern, which right. is intense. Yeah. Um, totally, and and that's and that's you know we're we're designed we're designed for anxiety, as I was saying. We're designed for these short bursts of real intense anxiety, right? So you're you're out hunting and gathering, and and, and you know a saber tooth tiger shows up, mm. you know massive burst of of, of adrenaline. So we're designed for that, but then we're designed at the end of the day, assuming we survive, right, to go back to our tribe and have peace and quiet and, and soothing through connection with, with others. Mm-hmm. And now when we go back to our caves these days, right, where the, the problems of the world and, and, and kind of countless people are streamed to us um, uh, throughout the day, particularly with, uh, you know, as we go through uh, uh, COVID, right? Um, You know, the amount of uh, just sheer anxiety provoking uh, uh, media that that we're exposed to daily, you know, is absolutely going to rev up our anxiety levels. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too. It's just the personification of um, anxiety in the book. It's kind of, I thought it was, um, you know, very, very interesting and fun at times because I mean, uh, mm-hmm. there was times where you were talking about how um, it's baffled. It's actually baffled itself about modern technology. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess it, it just, it's with how fast things are changing. I kept getting, to, you know, while I was reading, I was thinking a lot about, well, you know, Lot we change a lot over time to adapt, but it seems that anxiety is just it hasn't been able to adapt in the same way to the world around us. And I'm assuming just because that was for so long, you know, the the human beings were dealing with these stresses, and it just it just became so ingrained that when this modern technology comes along, it's not like you can flip a switch and and go back to not being concerned or or. You know how how is anxiety supposed to deal with that? It just it, I kept thinking about that. Right. So when you think about again, human humanish people being around for uh, a couple million years, mm-hmm. um, things have changed so dramatically in such a very short period of time that that anxiety has hasn't been updated. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if anxiety were were to catch up with us today. We would, you know, if we went to see like an action movie or a horror movie, it would be incredibly boring because our anxiety would say, yeah, there's, you know, that monster's not here now. Mm-hmm. You're staring at the screen, right? And it would, it, we, you know, roller coasters would be boring. Yeah. So many yeah. things. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, so so absolutely it is, it is uh, changed immensely. Absolutely. So um, to kind of speak towards... Um, not solutions, but just, you know, ways to kind of live with and, and, and come, you know, to some sort of peace with this anxiety beast. How can we better learn to live with it? And you mentioned some things in your book that I found very helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so one of the things I think is important to understand is while anxiety is normal and even a high level of anxiety at times. So mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you're going to go out on a first date with somebody that you really are interested in, and you haven't dated in 20 years, your anxiety is going to be up there, yeah. right? Um, and so understanding that that anxiety is normal, even high levels of anxiety at times is normal. And anxiety disorder is a different thing, right? So we can get into these uh, kind of a, just a bad relationship with our anxiety. So let's say that, uh, you know, we want to, we want to uh, make more friends, right? That's, that's a value of ours. Uh, but anxiety um, is afraid, right? You mm-hmm. know, um, and, and tries to protect you from going and, and, and talking to new people or, or you know, uh, going to a meetup or, or, or something like that. And so it, uh, it uh, um, howls and howls and tries to convince you to stay home and, 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 and not, uh, not go out. Um, and if you listen to anxiety and you respond kind of based on the emotion, so you either, uh, avoid going out or you, you go out only in very specific, uh, kind of safe sorts of ways, like you'll go out, but you'll stay close to a safe person, or you'll have four or five drinks before the party. Mm-hmm. All of that is reinforcing to anxiety training anxiety even further that this is a threat Mm -hmm. and anxiety is going to learn, right? It's going to learn. So when we're anxious, 
I think about anxiety as being like a three-year-old with a clipboard <laughs> taking notes, right? Yep. It's, it's going to learn something. And so if you're given the opportunity to public speak at work and that wakes up your anxiety, how you respond, your anxiety is going to know. So if you go and, and everything turns out good enough, mm-hmm. anxiety is going to learn something. If you avoid it or you, you, you do it, but you kind of white knuckle through the whole thing, anxiety is going to learn something different. And so we want to be uh, mindful of what are, you know, when, when we're presented with an anxious situation, anxiety, it's going to learn something. Mm -hmm. So we want to be mindful of what am I going to teach anxiety now? What do I want it to learn in the long haul? Not only is it, um, I like the idea of him, uh, with his notepad taking notes, but not only is he taking those notes and, and learning, but um, he uh, he has or he or she or whatever this thing is has confirmation bias as well, and I guess that's what you're speaking to as well, and that's uh, that's something I think even knowing some of these and thinking about them um, helps put into practice that that you know you can really just is the more you know about it and that that how it's working within you, you can you can learn to work with it in a lot a lot of mm-hmm. ways, and then also. You mentioned at one time how um, it can also be a sign of growth, which I thought was a really um, interesting idea. And, and can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so if you if you want to be, you want to have your anxiety really quiet, mm-hmm. right, and really peaceful. Um, and again, it's never going to be completely quiet and completely peaceful. But if you really want your anxiety to uh, how as minimally as possible, don't do anything in life, right? <laughs> don't, 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 don't make friends because mm-hmm. you can lose that friend and that's a threat, right? Don't have a romantic relationship because you might get rejected mm-hmm. or that relationship may come to an end. And, uh, you know, that's a threat. Um, don't go to school because you might fail, right? Yeah. Don't, don't go, go to work because you could get fired. Right. Um, Take no risk. Do nothing, and, and anxiety will likely be quieter. And so, if you are seeking relationships and, and career pathways and educational pathways, it's all things that may not work out, which your anxiety is naturally going to see as a threat, mm-hmm. and it will howl about that. But if you think about it, it's a sign that you are doing something of meaning, something of value yes. to you. And that's that's a really fun way to think about it. If if you know, it's I always think about when I'm putting myself in positions where I do feel nervous or anxious. It's it's you know I'm always t- telling myself you know that's when you know you're doing something that matters. That's when you know you're doing something sure. to progress in in, in in a fun way. Um, so mm-hmm. obviously we're. We're dealing with some unique times right now, and I think this is actually a great time for uh, a book like yours to to come out, like this this book. And um, but uh, I was wondering if you could speak on this um, heightened climate of uh, anxiousness that might be abound, or any any advice you might have to people uh, besides read this book, of course, but um, just to uh, to kind of combat uh, the, the, these feelings that are coming our way. Any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, how many hours do you have? I know. Just <laughs> <laughs> anything generally, though. I'm just, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> Great answer. So, uh, I, you know, I, I've never um, seen a more anxious 
time in the world mm-hmm. as as right now in, in my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're 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 faced with something that is a threat. It's an actual threat. Yep. But it's invisible, mm-hmm. and it could be anywhere, and and and, and we can't see it. Uh, we can't hear it. Um, and you can imagine anxiety, which is designed to protect us from these readily apparent sorts of uh, threats. It does not like this. Um, we as a species do not like uncertainty. And uh, this is an incredibly uh, uncertain time. Yeah. And so I would say, number one, understanding that if you're feeling anxious these days, you're in very good company. Mm-hmm. Um, not anybody that, yeah, anybody that, that has zero anxiety at all for this, I, you know, I'd be worried about them and uh, their loved ones mm-hmm. uh, because yep. I think they could they could end up taking some some uh, uh, risks that uh, maybe aren't aren't, aren't such smart. a good idea. Yeah, true. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that uh, we want to understand that anxiety is going to be louder for this. It's doing its job. It yep. doesn't like uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once there's a vaccine and once the uncertainty kind of kind of settles and we can tolerate a lot of uncertainty, this is just an unusual amount. Yeah. Right. Um, once once this eases up, then then anxiety will quiet back down. Um, but but this is this is really, you know, this is an emotionally difficult time for 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 so many people. Um, and so you know, I I think in terms of we we want to make a good home for our anxiety within our nervous system, mm-hmm. right? And so if we think anxiety exists within our nervous system, right? Our, our, our brain is part of our nervous system and, and anxiety is, is living in there. So we want to treat our nervous system as, as well as we can, right? And so doing things like exercising, um, prioritizing sleep, doing some relaxation exercises, um, we absolutely... Uh, benefit from safe socializing, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. You know, the, the social distancing is so unnatural for us. Um, and we're designed to be soothed through connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. And so we really want to go out of our way to uh, to make sure we are, uh, are connecting with people. Um, you know, limiting substances like like caffeine um you know if you're somebody that has normally three or four cups of coffee in a day as you're running about Mm -hmm. your 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 active life that's one thing but if you're taking in all that caffeine you're sitting on the sofa or doing something else that that's just less active you're Mm -hmm. not burning that off and your nervous system is just going to be a more agitated place for your anxiety to uh to be there. Um, I like the idea too, um, as we're talking about these things to really help uh, manage everything is uh, taking or adopting a more compassionate inner tone and, um, you know, forgiving yourself and and just being kinder to yourself. It's something I think about often uh, during this thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we think about just from a pragmatic standpoint, right, that if we're kind to ourselves, if we're compassionate with ourselves and with our inner experience, 
we're going to do better in life, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're, there's, there's quieter anxiety, less depression, increased sense of well-being, right? And if we kind of go by this punishment model, right, that, that, that if I'm not perfect, then I'm going to beat myself up until I become mm-hmm. perfect, it's just a harder life. Uh, we're just going to feel a lot worse. Yep, absolutely. No, that's another thing. Uh, rethinking perfectionism is something you mentioned, which is great. But um, yeah, I found this book just incredibly helpful. It gave me a lot to chew on. It's very accessible. I'll point that out to readers. Um, and um, yeah, it's just wonderful. I mean, Thank the you. fact that uh, you know you're pointing out how how normal it is. It just I, something I think that's so important that. Um, you know, it's, it's, we don't have to feel weirdos about having to feel like weirdos uh, about this, this, this thing in us that's actually trying to protect us in the long run. So it's yeah, a really, really right. neat way to look at it. Yeah, no. And actually it's much weirder if you're not anxious. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it's much less adaptive. Yep. I mean, even think right now, I mean, you mentioned it, but I mean, that's what's keeping us home and keeping a lot of us, uh, our family and, 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 you know, the population in general home is, is an anxiousness of fear. And that's, I mean, we can look at it directly to this moment of it being a tool to help us stay alive. And that's, that's a really, really special way to look at it. So, yeah, yeah. well, I I agree. (laughs) I'm sure you do. Um, I appreciate your time, Dr. Goodman. I really, uh, I really enjoyed the read and I enjoyed talking about it here today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you as well. Thank you again to Dr. Goodman. I'm hoping some of those ideas uh, hit home to some of you out there or at least gave you something to chew on. So as promised, here is uh, an article I entitled ICU that I wrote a couple years back. What is it? I asked to her voice trembling on the other end of the phone. It's dad. My mother managed. Little else needs to be said. And I would be damned if I made her relive what just occurred. I'm on my way, I spat with conviction, cloaking deranged terror with reassuring bravado. I would learn moments later on a phone call with my brother that my father had fallen while jogging, his second serious heart attack in nearly as many months. This one would have stolen him if not for the unfathomable luck in the form of a passerby with a defibrillator. What are the odds? But the situation was dire. Prepare yourself for the worst, I was told, as if one ever could. I was debriefed of my father's condition en route from Brooklyn to Massachusetts. It was explained to me in amateurish detail the condition he was to be found in. I was told of the multitude of tubes encompassing his body, providing for the maintenance of his vital function. I was notified of the gash on his head from where he fell, and of his knee that withstood the first impact of the plunge. He's on full life support, Mike, in a coma, they warned. They froze him, you'll see. They say it's good for his brain, I was cautioned. He'll be fine, I told myself as I leaned my foot onto the gas pedal, steaming up Interstate 95. What type of cop would ticket a distressed son competing with time for his father's last breaths? I wondered. I leaned my foot onto the pedal a little harder. They came in droves. A large Irish Catholic family. Ten siblings on my mother's side alone. All accounted for. All there to show love and support. He looks just like Dad did, my father's sister said, referring to my grandfather's final days. How are the Yankees going to be this year, one cousin asked me, a question that received as scant a response as it deserved. I think you should know that there could be severe brain damage, Mike, or even worse, one of my uncles told me, a doctor who had seen it all. Dad's waking up, I responded, and he'll be okay. I'm sure he will, he said in retreat, his eyes betraying the measure of contrived hope.
I stayed with him alone through the late hours of the second night, sending the rest of my resistant yet weary immediate family members home. You guys need rest, I demanded. He will need you when he wakes, I begged my mother. But what about you, they asked. I'm used to late nights, I quipped. You know me. As the room hollowed out of distractions and support, I was left alone with a wisp clasp of the breathing machine keeping my father viable. I was given the headspace to obsessively consider the full body glove pumping frigid air about my father's time-worn frame and to take in his fragile physique, a man I once presumed unbreakable. Left with him under my care, my words were the sole stimulus and incentive around. You're going to get through this, Dad. I love you, Dad. I'm sorry, Dad. A sharp beep pierced the silence in between the mechanized oxygen huffs. A startling respite from superfluous introspection and brooding. A night nurse casually danced in like a barback and began to take stock of the inventory of inverted bottles and baggies hanging like shirts, haloing my father. Replacing the culprit, she turned to me with a heartening simper. It's the Michael Jackson drug, she said, referring to propofol. She was meaning to make me smile. She had been working tirelessly all night, checking vitals and refilling readily consumed medical fluids flowing freely into my father. I gave her a warm smile as she left. The clock read 4 a.m. I squeezed my father's hand. It was ice cold, lifeless. I wasn't there when he woke. One of the few instances I wasn't bedside during my father's 48-hour coma. When I did arrive, he was sitting up. Besides the obvious fatigue and bare-faced shell-shocked demeanor, he was dad. Cheesy jokes and all. In no time at all, we set about the predictable way in which families cloak trauma, guilelessly laughing it away. You see the lengths I have to go to get all you kids in the room at once, he taunted, dismissing the fact that when he was found, there wasn't even a trace of a heartbeat, and his breathing had ceased entirely. But here he was. I knew so much had changed, but you can never know exactly what in the moment. I was just happy, grateful, relieved in a way I had never known. But something was different in me, far beyond the inability to ever take the presence of my father for granted ever again. I had changed. I was in a hotel room in Maryland when it first happened. Columbia, all office parks and strip malls. Too prearranged for my liking. Not a lick of improvisation in the arrangement. An imperfect locale for my first heart attack, I concluded. The hour was late. My friend lay asleep in the bed adjacent to mine while panic consumed me. My heart was thumping like a kick drum. My breathing challenged. I felt consciousness escaping my grip. I fought to stay awake, rubbing water into my face at steady intervals. I woke my friend in a huff. I think there's something wrong with me, I said. He sat up, kicked his feet over the side of the bed while rubbing his eyes, confounded by this ordinarily cool customer now siphoning exaggerated breaths and pacing the room. I grew bashful, more shame than concerned. Wait, I'm fine, man. I'm sorry. Get some rest. I was just bugging, thinking about something all good. All wasn't good for another few hours when the feeling subsided my heart rate finally returning to normal. The second time it happened, I was in Cape Cod on vacation, about to walk to the beach. As stress-free a moment as conceivable. Crisp ocean air and the sand beneath my toes would have to wait, as a few hours of unhinged trepidation was apparently what the moment had called for. The third event, as I was beginning to term the happenings, occurred at my home in Brooklyn. This one was a doozy, a midday walloping that had me convinced the end was nigh. My chest ached and it throbbed. I felt dizzy and swore I detected an ache in my left arm. I was sweating and the room felt tropical, thick and moist. I hit the streets for some fresh air. 
my phone in my hand as I walked, a nine and a one already pre-dialed with my forefinger hovering over another one, ready. I was overheating and flush in the face. I was wearing a light jacket and athletic shorts. It was 18 degrees out. It was time to consult the professionals. The thing that bothered me about giving myself over to the medical community in this case was I understood the absurdity. I was three years shy of 40 at the time. The frequency in which I exercised would be considered fanatical by some. And my weekend shenanigans, while still ongoing, had downsized in intensity and frequency to a level I am probably far too comfortable with. But the doctors, bless them, heard me out. And by the end of the first visit, I had laid all the cards on the table, confessing. Recently, my dad had a heart attack. A bad one. Ah, I see, the doctor said, with a settled understanding, as the puzzle pieces began to finally fit together. We did speak about the possibility of this all being mental, but I wanted to be sure. And so we ran all the tests, and I even submitted myself to a full stress test with a cardiologist. There was also a heart sonogram. The brand they employ for pregnancies where my heart was visually and meticulously analyzed. We went all in. What I felt was real. It was terrifying. But when all the results came in, I was granted a clean bill of health. You're cool, the cardiologist said to me. A man so taut the word cool rolled off his tongue like cement. Cool, I asked, confounded by so rustic of a diagnosis. Beyond cool, he added with a smile. I interpreted his mocking. I've taken the time to inform myself and talk to people about anxiety and panic attacks, and there's no doubt my symptoms align. I'm not sure the connection between those instances where I lost control and my reckoning with what occurred with my father, but I'm cognizant of the relationship. The room, the ICU, the whips clasp, my father's cold hands in the tubes, they still linger with me in a way I've yet to fully understand. And I know that I'm vulnerable to something I wasn't before, a force so overwhelming it drove me to a level of fear I wasn't familiar with. But this demon that bubbled to the surface, this newfound chink in the armor... Doesn't bother me so much in hindsight. It's part of me, this imperfection. Whatever it was, it wasn't something that just occurred, but a part of my being, something from within. That's, that's okay, I think. Beyond cool. Those words I think of often pouring out of the doctor's mouth as if he had just cured the word of all its ills. Thanks, Doc. Now define cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening and for taking another trip across the margin.